0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey People-Centric
1: Knockriner, keeping it simple.
0: Okay, Uh, never mind. I was going to have a very smart A response Do it, do it.
1: The podcast wants to hear.
0: You are are very people-centric and not technical-centric at all. So I'm
1: trying, I'm trying. I got to live up to a possible prediction for next year. <laughs> <laughs> anyways, on today's
0: episode, we start with an update on the Cisco iOS XE flaw that we discussed last week. Uh, we then dive into the world of Scattered Spider slash Octa Tempest. I I, you know, I'm never going to get over Microsoft's new gaming bunch of these, but
1: anyways, over scattered sky spiders just give me the heebie-jeebies especially during the halloween months yeah, at least really octo does. tempest doesn't crawl around it does on its eight legs
0: um and, and on f- on the underground yep oh octo spider i get it now anyways and then finally uh we end with a update on Citrix's latest uh high severity vulnerability and their NetScaler applications, including a analysis of the exact code flaw that caused it. Sounds With that, pretty bloody. It sounds pretty bloody. With that, let's. Uh, it's almost Halloween. Let's trick or treat our <laughs> way. At... <laughs> Is that you being spooky?
1: Join the Spook House, the four four three podcast. <laughs> I, I hope you don't breathe the door. Zombie la liberté
0: and to... people trick or treating children joined the spook
1: house. <laughs> no one right. comes to our house anymore. Our driveway's too long in this neighborhood is full of old people.
0: So, let's start this week with the first story, which is actually an update from last week. Uh, if you remember in the last episode, we chatted about the pretty serious Cisco IOS XE vulnerability that was under active exploitation with like tens of thousands of internet exposed devices receiving implants. Um, Pretty big deal if you were one of those uh, administrators that likes to expose management ports to the internet. uh,
1: As does everyone apparently, at least 10,000 Cisco IOS people or I don't know, 30, 40, whatever it was.
0: Yes, (laughs)
1: far too many. Um,
0: well, so this last week, uh, the company Horizon Three AI uh, published a analysis that doesn't give like the exact smoking gun uh, details about the the vulnerabilities from that issue, but at least gives some really good clues and theory crafting around how the attackers were able to first create a authenticated account, or at least gain an authenticated session on these devices, and then install that implant. Uh, on the compromised devices um so there's a bit of context that they start out with um I, so for folks that are not Cisco admins like me this may be news to you for folks that are Cisco admins this is probably a refresher but Cisco IOS their traditional operating system it's a unique operating system that's effectively just a giant binary that runs on their hardware that's the like old or legacy one they've got some newer versions like Cisco IOS XE that are as course showing in the video based on Linux but they still have a lot of the old functionality of Cisco IOS that they bake into like this monolithic library called IOSD, so IOS Daemon, that still runs on top of now this Linux-based operating system. So IOS XE is all Linux-based, which opens some potential avenues along the way. Um, so the vulnerability Cisco makes
1: everything running on the platform, right? They certainly don't use open source, like because no other company does either.
0: Uh certainly no open source like the web server Nginx. Um as (laughs) and (laughs) Lua. Yeah, as Corey's maybe hinting at. Um so the vulnerable web UI service that was impacted by these vulnerabilities, it's a combination of the open source Nginx web server, which to be clear, like that's not an issue. Like we use Nginx on the Firebox. Uh it's not like everyone does, as long as you keep it up to
1: date. It would design.
0: Yeah. Um they've not customized, but at least uh, set up extensions within Nginx to be able to run Lua scripts. So basically server-side scripting that kind of augments some of the functionality of Nginx, allows it to interact with uh, specific other binaries or at least functions from that iOSD application directly. Can we pause there?
1: There lies complexity. There's there's like an old saying that the more complexity, like complexity and security don't come together. And unfortunately, our world is just getting more and more complex. So I was just jokingly pointing out that Cisco, you know, like everybody, uses open source. So right away, you're writing your own code. You have to make sure that your own code is written securely. You use open source, now you're adding a new thing, which is having to keep the open source up to date. But then there's this third layer of complexity, which is the mechanisms interacting between your code and the open source, which are these Lua scripts. So you could maybe have your code technically written securely, Nginx totally up to date, not exposing vulnerabilities directly from itself, But now when you definitely you still need to create interactions between those things and just just think about every layer that's added to modern software. That additional complexity is a new opportunity for for potentially screwing up. And I think that's one of the biggest problems we face in technology nowadays is the complexity. There are no simple systems nowadays. The complexity of our environments are insane. But anyways, sorry. End of soapbox. You were saying Lewis scripts interact. That's a great point.
0: Because like to give an example, like they've got their big monolithic library, iOSD, which contains a whole bunch of functionality to interact with the actual router or switch itself, like set configurations or upgrade it or whatever. You know, those different functions have different levels of like access control that you're supposed to require to get to it. Like you might Allow a read-only user to view the configuration, but only a administrator user can write the configuration. Um, Nginx, on the other hand, you know is handling web requests from unauthenticated or un- authenticated sources, and that interaction of both like authenticating and authorizing authorizing the user at the web UI, like the Nginx server, and then exposing uh, access to just these specific functions they are authorized to use through that custom middleware is as you're hinting at, Corey. Mm-hmm uh where vulnerabilities like what potentially happened here can pop up fairly easily. Um so the researchers they decided to look into you know this Nginx configuration and its interaction with that iOSD binary. Um they pointed out actually they first they tried loading it up in Ghidra,
1: the uh NSA developed open source reverse engineering tool, but I'll also point out free. So if you're trying to do research for free, Ghidra is the one you use, so you sure hope it works. But, but the, uh, that iOSD library is just so
0: dang big that Ghidra was choking to death on it, trying to, uh, decompile it, uh, back into reviewable code. Uh, so they ended up loading up Ida instead, the exact opposite of a free, uh, file reverse engineering toolkit. Uh, and began first just reviewing strings associated with the nginx configuration. They found out like the reason they went to this is uh Cisco IOS XE builds the nginx configuration at runtime in a temp directory. Uh, and so that means the IOSD library was responsible for setting that nginx configuration. And they wanted to be able to analyze it and see exactly what was going on. Um so when they were reviewing the uh the operating system and specifically like the diffs the patch between the fixed version and the unfixed version they found a few interesting things to look into one of them was a script called wsma applib.lua so a Lua script that middleware between nginx and the iosd library and specifically one of the updates they found uh, was that cisco in this new updated version manually sets a header and the request from NGINX being forwarded on to uh, the the Web UI system internals, the WSMA application, they set a header called proxy URL source and set it to web UI underscore internal. Uh, In other locations in that binary, they also set the proxy URI source header to global. So seemingly, there's two levels of access control for the tagging the requests that are being made to IOSD. They also note there's some functionality checks to make sure that proxy UI header is set to web UI internal before completing applications. And while they didn't find a a smoking gun of like, here is the exact exploit chain that they used, they came up with some pretty reasonable theories. Like it seems like the attacker probably found either like a method bypass vulnerability or a uh, server side request forgery vulnerability where they were able to call what should have been protected internal function calls as a unauthenticated user. So breaking some of that custom middleware between NGINX and its authentication and authorization and IOSD and its privileged and unprivileged functions. Um, That was the first vulnerability, which uh, was CVE 2023-20198, the one that effectively allowed the threat actors to create an account with elevated privileges as a previously unauthenticated user. If you remember from our discussion last week though uh, they pointed to cisco talos pointed to two avenues for the implant being installed there was an old vulnerability from i think 2021 that had been patched on a lot of systems but they found the threat actors abusing that one still to install the implant And this new vulnerability cve 2023-20273 that was another method for effectively gaining code execution or at least arbitrary command injection on the host And so in Horizon 3 AI, we're trying to figure out details about that vulnerability. Um, They found um, an area in the code where they uh, changed how, Cisco changed how they validate an IPv6 address. And there's actually a comment in there where the developer that made the change said, as a cardinal rule for any validation check, assume the input is invalid. So previously, when trying to validate whether a string was a IPv6 address, Uh, It would do a couple of checks, and if those failed, it would mark it as not an IPv6 address, but its default would be, okay, it's valid. As long as it doesn't fail these checks, it's an IPv6 address. Now the reality is, it is extremely difficult to have a check for every single potential avenue for like exploiting this type of data input, and so they've now switched it to, by default, it assumes the string is not a valid ipv6 address unless it passes a few more specific checks. and so horizon 3ai actually came up with this kind of proof of concept where they had a ipv6 address followed by a semicolon and then just a command for a cisco ios and they found that that was validated as a correct ipv6 address with the old one. so long story short they the, their next theory for installing that file was basically they believe that the threat actors were able to uh, find a command injection vulnerability that allowed them to download and install that uh, implant by abusing that validation check, potentially. So there's, additionally, a logic bug fix in like the software update utils Lua script, changing a not and to an or. They theorize the attacker could create an account with a method bypass flaw uh, due to not having that proxy header set correctly. And then through the IPv6 validation, sneak in a command that would get executed through that Lua script, and then either basically call any function that they had on iOS. So it could be create the user could be called the web rest upgrade function to upgrade the operating system, which matches up with one of the IOCs Talos gave where it showed one of the lines to look for was install operation info with a username and the install operation, add file. So. It seems like they're on the right path just based off of their research into this without having the actual smoking gun of here is the telemetry we have showing the exploit chain. And if there's no other takeaway for this, like that comment that the developer had of as a cardinal rule for any validation check, assume the input is invalid is pretty on par with how developers should be treating untrusted input, like always default to it's bad until proven otherwise and while there's still ways to sneak bad code around in there potentially does limit like your need to uh identify every single fail case and account for that Corey, any other takeaways from
1: you no i think we covered them all good research from horizon 3 and you know it always comes down to classic secure coding don't trust your inputs because even though you think there might be a normal user input, it's not always a normal user. Exactly,
0: and then, you know, like you mentioned earlier at the start of this section, just limiting complexity and security is one of the best things you can do for making an application, a system, a organization more secure. Because the more complex it is, the more difficult it is to catch all the edge cases that introduce vulnerabilities.
1: That that's hard. Like I'm going to use an analogy because I'm not the the best coder, but I am a writer. And you guys hear me on the podcast. I'm a long-winded dude that can take a long time to say a pretty simple thing. You but don't when I say. write, <laughs> No, shut up, Mark. <laughs> the best writing is when I actually take the time after uh, beeping it out. the The beep is a sh word. After beeping out my first draft, which is long, taking the time to actually figure out what I'm really trying to say uh, make it really short that short writing is very good and I think it's the same for code too there's a way you can actually brute force you have a problem you find this brute force way to to get some code to get it done But then when you look at it, you you often find that it was not the easiest, simplest way. And you might have added a lot of complexity and extra lines of code, which at the end of the day might end up being where your vulnerabilities are. So keep it simple, stupid, but admittedly, keeping it simple and not complex is a hard job. Uh, It takes more work than just crapping something out, but it's worth that work to keep your code secure.
0: Very well said. And this is also why our CTF platform two years ago had an authentication bypass vulnerability because some <laughs> developer code. of that application found something that worked <laughs> off of stack exchange and it worked, but they didn't account for all the potential edge scenarios for it,
1: but it's a hacking platform. It's supposed to be hacked, whatever.
0: Uh, yeah, anyways. that was
1: intentional. We just wanted to make the yeah. CTF fun, right? Mark. That was the added challenge.
0: Yes. Compromising <laughs> someone else's account on the CTF website. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, so moving on to another update. Uh, so Microsoft just published a blog post last week that was describing activity related to Octo Tempest, which is also known as Scattered Spider. Can we Spiner. remember? Yep. Can, did, so, do you
1: remember a Tempest? <laughs> I have to admit.
0: I did not remember Tempest, but they describe it in the first paragraph of their blog post. It is a English speaking, financially motivated threat actor. Um, so in this case, OctoTempest, uh, which is known by other research firms as Scattered Spider, uh, they're a threat actor that commonly uses adversary in the middle techniques and social engineering in order to compromise organizations and now extort them either through ransomware, data theft, or and sometimes just good old threats of physical violence. Um, so Octo slash. By the way, we say fire. good
1: old, but I actually think it's notable and slightly, I guess this is one, one, it, it, to me, it is notable for cyber criminals to yes. use physical violence. You say good old because normal criminals always have done that, but cyber criminals, it's weird. But at the same time, this is threats of violence. So it is kind of cyber threat. It's bullying more than anything. Correct.
0: I don't um, think they so- ended
1: up going to anyone's door and beating them up. They're probably not. little weaklings in their basement, uh, mom's Somewhere basement anyways. Somewhere in the anyways. middle
0: of Russia, probably. Yeah. Um, but anyways, mm-hmm. so Scattered Spider slash Octotempest are most prominently known for the most recent breaches on the Las Vegas Strip. Uh, they compromised Caesar's entertainment, stealing a bunch of driver's license and social security numbers. They also deployed ransomware that took down MGM for like weeks. Uh, in fact, crap, I still need to get my hotel receipt from them. I just remembered that, but anyways, um, so Microsoft and their blog posts, like go through the history of Octo Tempest, um, as well as some of their latest tool, uh, tactics, techniques and procedures. So first off, they note that they started out in like early 20, uh, 2022, primarily targeting mobile telecommunications and business process outsourcing organizations, mostly as a way to gain a foothold. To then leverage and launch additional attacks, like they could, let's say, compromise an account in T-Mobile, that then could give them the ability to do a SIM swapping attack against another victim for a different location. And so they expanded in like late 2022, early 2023, where they started targeting additional organizations. Uh, they went after cable telecommunications, email, and technology providers. And then they started monetizing their intrusions by, like I mentioned, extorting victims, sometimes with physical threats, which we'll get into in a second. In mid-2023, so just a few months ago, they became an affiliate of the Elfv slash Blackcat uh, ransomware as a service offering. Uh, and they primarily focused on going after VMware ESXi servers as targets. Basically, if you can encrypt the hypervisor in like, the data stores, you encrypt all of the virtual machines that are running on that. Um, so in their blog post, Microsoft goes through literally the entire kill chain, which is awesome to see from a research perspective of uh, the tactics and techniques um, from uh, Octo Tempest. When it comes to initial access, uh, they mentioned they commonly target administrators and like support and help desk personnel, but they still sometimes go after individual victims too. When they're going after help desk, They'll call to like try and trigger a password reset or an MFA reset for a user. When they go after victims, they try and trick them into going to an adversary in the middle toolkit or disable their MFA tokens. Um, They also use text I thought it was
1: interesting that they, I I mean, you know, there's things like FIDO2 and MFA to really protect identity, but they go as far as social engineering their way to getting... You know getting enough access that either they can disable fido2 tokens or they get someone else to
0: yeah uh, they also trick victims into installing legitimate rmm tools as well which in theory gives them access to that victim's computer they've been doing sms based phishing phishing uh, to trick victims into adversary in the middle toolkits over text message as well um, and then they've used some of their existing access in telcos to do SIM swapping attacks against victims that are using text message-based multi-factor authentication. They also have an example of the screenshots that Corey showed on the YouTube video uh, where they sent threatening texts and calls to victims where they used personal information, they stole like their home address, their family names, and literally threatened to come and like beat them up or kill them or shoot their house if they didn't give them the access they wanted, which is, man, it's, a, it, it's extreme. And
1: yeah. yeah. Kind of new i'm not surprised by, by the way th- this isn't in, intended to incite fear i don't i honestly think these are weakling boring people that wouldn't do that and the, the fear is having someone know your address and phone number but the one thing i hate to say people know your address and phone number it, it leaked years ago with equifax your address is pretty much public knowledge because you probably unless you bought with cash or something uh you've, you've taken a loan so you know i I, i'm not saying ignore threats when people are saying i know where you live and i have your phone number but i am saying that don't be super surprised or scared about that it's not a hard thing to there are sites you could go to and put someone's name in and get 12 of their last known addresses and many are usually right so you shouldn't ignore these threats you should You should report them, but don't let the fact that they know this stuff incite any extra fear. Unfortunately, other companies, whether intentional because it's public information or unintentional because they lost Equifax, lost all our data a long time ago, including our social security numbers. Uh, If you're a US citizen, your stuff is out there. Yeah, it is
0: pretty extra. I could see it being the victim on the receiving end of this, though, like just how shocking it might be.
1: As a new method of extortion to try and trick you into getting an account. Well, I've had Um, friends that have had just normal phone phishing where they pretend to be like a sheriff and say you have a bond. And during that, they verify your phone address and your real address because they know it. Uh, They told you they had sent a subpoena to your home address, that the subpoena doesn't exist, but your home address is real. And they even use voice over IP technology to make their phone number look like they come from your local sheriff's office. So it's for the person receiving this if you're not in cyber that that seems very scary and very convincing so it's no wonder that people do get upset by this and we've yep. seen the the sextortion stuff too unfortunately sometimes there really have been cloud breaches where bad guys get your inappropriate picture not inappropriate but your personal pictures but sextortion is like the same thing right they they say I have something that you're going to be really embarrassed about, and I'm going to release it. And here's, here's all the details of your password and stuff like that. So it's a really common technique. Just remind yourself they're trying to get you emotional and fearful so that you do something stupid. You don't have to don't, don't, don't let the bullies win. You can fight back. Well said.
0: Um, So after gaining initial access, they move on to the reconnaissance and discovery phase where they typically they look through internal company knowledge base resources to try and find things like network architecture, employee onboarding and offboarding instructions, remote access methods like your password policies, credential management, all of that. They also look through cloud environments and code repositories, basically looking for any information that might help them find your crown jewels and then ultimately steal them and potentially encrypt them as well too. Microsoft. I'm not going to list through all of them, but they name a few specific applications and techniques that these threat actors are using in each of these kill chain steps. I will say the blog post will have to include it in the show notes like Microsoft. They must have pissed someone off at Microsoft of data. because yeah. tons of information just calling out everything they know about these threat actors. It's very information cool. rich
1: watching our youtube video you can see i'm only one fourth or maybe one third scrolled and we've already covered a ton of text so they 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 shared a great a lot of great information here
0: yep when it comes to privilege escalation they rely mostly on social engineering and sim swapping attacks like once they gain access to a victim's account they then try and gain access to one of the administrator's accounts um, through uh, like social engineering techniques but they also still use some traditional tools, too. They listed Mimikatz and other utilities to steal credentials as well.
1: I'm going to, the one thing I, I want to shout out to people out there is we, I, Mark might be the same as me, but we geek out about technical hacks a lot. Uh, we'll be doing our predictions soon, and I think I had a list of about 14 that we're figuring out which ones are the ones that we all like. Uh, But a 15th one is that CISOs are going to shift to being people-centric organizations. And I'm bringing that up because as we're reading through this, yeah, there's a lot of techniques and tools and maybe some technical configuration mistakes and things you can do to protect yourself. But social engineering, I don't talk about it. You know, I, I never thought Mitnick was that cool because I geek out more about technical hackers that find really cool hacks. But at the end of the day, when we solve all the technical hacks, the social engineers are the problem. These guys are successful. Be- I mean, we're already talking about human psychology, about emotion, about threats, about trying to trick people to do something so that they can turn off your security. So just as we're talking about this, I really think the types of hacks that trick people or or the technical hacks like SIM card swaps that let you kind of take on the role of people, uh, that's going to be the biggest problem in security for a while. So as a, a organization securing your company, if you have a CISO office, people-centric is actually probably your focus. You probably already have tools and technologies. You know the strategies, you know the best practices. Yeah, sometimes it takes a while to implement best practices because of business procedure and things, but the best bang in your buck is just helping your users understand all of the implications of security and social engineering. Anyways, sorry, rando pause, but we've just heard social engineering a lot during this. We sure as heck have.
0: Um, When it comes to evading detection, they also use those uh, legitimate RMM tools to try and evade EDR technologies. They'll modify security staff mailbox rules to suppress alerts and notifications to try and limit your ability to see alerts that might be coming in. They even go and try and disable some of your security tools using some open source uh, and paid toolkits oh, that, that are designed yeah. to do that. Um, it's pretty nuts um, when it comes to persistence. Um, they use a lot what of is publicly it privacy
1: sexy. Is that the one I remember yeah, reading privacy that's sexy. the open source one? I'm yep. I'm not finding it right now on the page, but privacy sexy was one that was used. It's a new one
0: I hadn't heard of, and uh, yeah. I'll have to look into it later. Um, when it comes to persistence, they use a lot of openly available tools. They One of the interesting techniques, they'll federate your existing domain to add their own, which then allows them to forge SAML authentication tokens called a golden SAML attack, so they can maintain persistence. Uh, but they also primarily use RMM tools for that remote access back into the
1: organization. I want to pause on RMM tools again. Sorry, Mark. Tons of pauses. And it may be easy to so long-winded time. in so many words. RMM to EDR. Well, I I think this part is important because this isn't a flaw in the RMM tool or the EDR tool. I think you'll find besides RMM tool somewhere else it was mentioned that they take over EDR. Our RMM is just for the people that know remote monitoring and management. So tools remotely pay attention to your IT infrastructure. EDR is endpoint detection and response. But guess what? Most EDR ends up having RMM capabilities, it can often open CLIs that can do anything on a system because the security person getting alerts might have to go and save a system. So they're not flaws in EDR or RMM. There, there have been, because <laughs> VSA, but the, the issue isn't that these tools have vulnerabilities is once you socially engineer your way to gaining access, these are powerful freaking tools. These are literally the management tools that security professionals or IT people use. So I'm sure at the end of this, Mark, will want to get to fixes, but I just wanted to pause to say, They're using our own tools against us, which means we have to make sure to strongly validate users. Multi-factor is super important, and it's important to have policies around the social part of changing tokens, making sure someone that calls up and says, I can't get in is really that person, uh, because we've seen they will turn off your FIDO or they will emulate a person at your network to get you to help them set up a new account. So. I just wanted to pause to say, you know, we all use RMM tools. Hopefully, you're using an EDR product because they're great at catching these types of things. But the first thing these guys are trying to do is get into those tools to either turn them off or to leverage them to actually deliver the badness. So make sure identity is so important. Make sure you're levering, leveraging multi factor authentication and you have the human-centric policies to make sure someone can't socially engineer their way past your additional strong authentication. Yep,
0: 100%. Um, so when it comes to the finally the actions on objectives for the threat actors, they mostly rely on data theft and ransomware and then extortion demands. Uh, but when it comes to that data theft, there's some interesting details in there. They use legitimate tools again, like Microsoft 365 Backup or Veeam, as that method of exfiltrating your data out of the organization. like Maybe you've got tools or alerting capable of detecting them, like packing up a zip archive and shipping it off to something they control, but maybe you wouldn't catch legitimate tool usage like M365 backup or Veeam or some of their other uh, potential avenues. It's it, it makes sense why they're pivoting towards these because <laughs> It's unless you do application allow listing and they're using an application that isn't allow listed by your org, it can be pretty difficult to catch some of these legitimate application usages because they're legitimate. Your endpoint protection, your traditional endpoint protection isn't going to call Veeam a remote access data exfiltration Trojan or an info stealer. It's not because it's not. And so you need to make sure you've got EDR tools that can alert off of anomalous activity within your organization and usage of applications that you don't normally allow within the company.
1: And as XDR, I mean, for the folks that are big enough to afford and have a big enough team to manage SIMs, security incident and event management systems, their whole point is to correlate a lot of stuff. And XDR, extended detection and response, is something we do at WatchGuard, but it's kind of a growing and evolving thing similar to SIM. And like you say, Mark, it's not just that... Veeam or or microsoft 365 backup is being used that's normal but these these extra monitoring softwares pay attention to the anomalies you're mentioning mark like hey normally i see these users transferring tens of megabytes a day spread out through this four hours now i'm seeing you know two terabytes go out in an hour from a user that never touches it That's how you catch something where it's a legitimate tool, but something really weird is happening. So definitely look at the new, you know, hey, if you're afford a SIM or a SOAR, you're probably doing some of this now, but you're paying millions of bucks between users and software. But I think you'll find XDR solutions will start to look for anomalies much more than just whitelisting, this is bad application, this is good application.
0: Yep. And so while they're. That's the extent
1: of my understanding, Mark, by the way, caveman. I I let Mark do the technical details, and I'm more. This bad? Yes, Mark. This good? Yes, Mark. (laughs) Fix this. Yes, master. Um, No, no, master. (laughs)
0: Uh, So they actually, Microsoft also gives a great amount of guidance in their write up on this too. Uh, so much that we don't have time to go through absolutely everything, but I picked out a few right. interesting Let bits just from there. Scroll
1: to literally half of it is guidance. It's, it's insane. We yeah. we're, we're halfway through just for the issues and this is where the guidance starts.
0: But a few of the key ones are like, first off, just understanding your environment, everything from how users authenticate when they authenticate the types of tools they use, how they typically access, and then alert off of anomalies to that. Um, so that you can find those. Unexpected attack uh, patterns in there. Like as an example, um, the these threat actors commonly trip a lot of like pretty basic uh, identity and access management alerts within Microsoft 365. Uh, things like anomalous access, impossible travel, anomalous tokens, and unfamiliar sign-in properties are all like predefined rules in Microsoft 365 Defender that you can use. And just about like even AuthPoint as well has um different types of impossible travel rules and they were tripping those left and right and so don't like get into a sense of complacency where you're like potentially ignoring those make sure you've got them tuned correctly for like your um vpn access if you have it as well to lower false positive rates on them because those would have caught a lot of the activity that these threat actors were triggering Um, They also recommend centralizing visibility of your administrative changes in your environment. So as users are installing privileged applications or disabling your endpoint protection or EDR or modifying mail rules for privileged user accounts, like having visibility where you can detect those red flags is also key to catching this type of activity. And then the last one I wanted to highlight was in the world of Microsoft, uh, because this is Obviously, a Microsoft blog post and the overwhelming majority of companies use Microsoft 365. They also highly recommend using privileged identity management within Microsoft 365, which is basically, if you're not familiar with it, instead of assigning a domain admin account to Mark's account that is makes me perpetually a domain admin anytime I log in, you can use PIM instead to add things like a time-bound access requirement. Like I, instead of getting a permanent grant, I'm eligible for getting domain admin, but maybe only during the hours of nine to five. Maybe I need to uh, pass an MFA check in order to elevate. Maybe I need to give a written justification and link to a ticket number in order to elevate. These are all different settings you can set up in PIM and Microsoft's world to limit the potential opportunities for someone to elevate their access if they've compromised an account. So that way, even if they've compromised your service desk account or IT ops or whatever, there's still an additional hurdle to getting that actual elevated and damaging access that might be more difficult for them to get past, whether it be time bound, location, whatever. So I thought that was great guidance too. And only just a little bit of a self-plug for Microsoft on some of their good security controls they put in place.
1: Corey, anything else that uh, you want to add other than... Man, No, just 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 read this thing I'm scrolling through, because like Mark said, he covered the, the big highlights, but there's lots of little details for you. Yeah, some of it is Microsoft focused, but honestly, the overall general things can be done with other products as well. Agreed.
0: Uh, so moving on to the last story then. Uh, so last week, Citrix published an advisory for their Netscaler ADC and Netscaler Gateway applications that included a 9.4 out of 10 vulnerability that's being tracked as cve 2023-4966. Now, they describe this as a sensitive information disclosure in those Netscaler applications when they're configured as a gateway. Um, but when you look at the uh, common weakness enumeration tag, the CWE tag uh, that they put on it, CWE119, uh, it's label is actually improper restriction of operations within the bounds of a memory buffer, which gives us a little bit of a clue as to how a threat actor could exploit this vulnerability to steal sensitive information from the systems. Uh, first off, I guess, I don't know. Have we talked about CWEs before? Well, we talked about CVEs a lot on this podcast, but
1: CWEs are- I don't think are... so. I can't remember if we ever defined that acronym. No it's a relatively new ish or at least taking off
0: uh, term that came out of mitre again as usual just like the cve program cwe's are common weakness enumerations and while a cve is a tag for a specific vulnerability a cwe is a lexicon of weaknesses that could lead to a vulnerability so like a improper um input sanitization would be a cwe or a out-of-bounds buffer read is a CWE uh, designation. CWE119 is improper restrictions of operations within the bounds of a memory buffer. Basically, any type of like code or process vulnerability or issue weakness that could lead to a vulnerability gets its own tag. And I love this because it allows like us as a software vendor to be able to track like four vulnerabilities. What was the actual weakness that led to the vulnerability? And then over time, pull metrics and see: okay, do we need additional training around like input sanitization or memory management or whatever? And it also allows us as a society, uh, when we're discussing vulnerabilities, to have a level set of terms where we can point to exactly like what this weakness was that the attacker was exploiting. Um. So, quick tangent aside um it was interesting that citrix pointed to that cwe because it doesn't commonly translate a out of buffer read i guess to information i guess it kind of does sensitive information disclosure so anyways uh researchers at asset note uh recently published a post where they went and diffed the patch so found the differences in the patch between the fixed version and the vulnerable version of the citrix netscaler applications and they specifically looked in this library called NSPPE, which is the Netscaler Packet Processing Engine, basically contains the TCP IP stack and some HTTP services within this system. This export. time, Ghidra worked. <laughs> this time, Gidra worked. They actually, they loaded up the old operating system and the new one and used Gidra's bin export extension to create that diff file, which then let them see all of the functions that were changed, which I think were about 50 of them or so. And they really honed in on this one specific one. The, the function name is called NS AAA OAuth Send OpenID Config, which is pretty descriptive about what it actually does. It's a very simple function that generates a JSON payload uh, of the OpenID configuration for the Netscaler appliance and then uses SN printf, a C function, In order to insert the device's host name at appropriate locations within the payload oh wait you said sn
1: printf sn Hmm.
0: correct so as corey was hinting at s printf that um that c function is considered a dangerous one because it doesn't check the buffer before it writes to it and so it's very commonly mistakenly uh, triggers buffer overflows uh, as you're trying to write something to a location in a c compiled program whereas sn print f which i think is string new uh, print, i don't know what the n stands for uh, is the safe one where you, it will not overflow the buffer when you write you give it a size to write in and also when it reaches the end it just it, it won't
1: i continue. forget what the n means but but usually the addition is just this is not just a a random buffer that you or this is not a buffer that you're not going to define and thus, someone can fill it with the end the means there's another parameter in the function where you actually have to, to limit in, in some way. Yep, right? which is generally the have, length of I the buffer it. that you're
0: trying to, yeah. to fill with. Um, so in this case, it wasn't a buffer overflow, which typically triggers code execution, because they were using the quote unquote safe function in here in order to write the string. But the way that they set up their application introduced a different vulnerability. Um, so in the original version of the code uh, the the function would send the response immediately so it would generate this payload by inserting the host name using the snprintf function and then fire off a response uh, back to the the requester um, in the patched version the response is only sent if the snprintf function returns a value less than around 130 kilobytes uh, the hexadecimal value 0x 20,000. Um, so if you're not a C programmer, the return value for the SMprintf function, basically after you run it, the value you get back is the length of the buffer that it would have written to if it had the appropriately sized buffer. So basically, SMprintf it doesn't return how many bytes it wrote to the buffer. It returns how many bytes that it would have written if the buffer was large enough. And so if you pass a Fifty thousand kilobyte string into it, the return will be fifty thousand kilobytes, even if the buffer was only you know one hundred and thirty eight kilobytes, as an example. So the vulnerability was exploitable by basically um, you would trick it into uh, attempting to or thinking it was writing a significantly larger buffer, but the response back would be the size of that buffer. Even uh, let me try and explain that a little bit better. Um, so. Uh, it turns out, so the host name it's written in a few different locations in there, which also allows the attacker to exponentially grow the size of the buffer they're writing for this JSON payload. Uh, basically, they could submit a request with a host header of about 25,000 of the character A in order to expand and uh, create a larger buffer size than what is actually written. What's only written is only uh 130 kilobytes but it could say hey i'm gonna write 5 million kilobytes to this Uh, in the vulnerable code it would then create the json payload and then return it back but if it would take the value return from sm printf for the amount of data to return back which would cause it to read past the actual buffer and just start grabbing random memory that's adjacent to this function and ship it right back to whoever was requesting it this is Extremely similar to the old Heartbleed vulnerability in SSL v3. If you remember that one back in, man, what was it? Like 2012, 2013, literally forever ago, it feels like. Um, basically, SSL has the concept of a ping pong response where you send a ping message in a ping Wait, response
1: or ping request. Like something uh, our old president <laughs> would say. Ping pong ding oh. dong. Sorry, oh keep God. going.
0: <laughs> uh, so, you'd send like a ping saying, I'm going to send you five bytes, and those five bytes are five characters. And then the response would be those five characters back. The vulnerability for Heartbleed was I could send those five characters, but say, actually, I sent you 5,000 bytes. And the response back would be my five characters plus Very big. 4,995 additional bytes adjacent to it. And it was leaking secrets. There. Exactly. In the, uh, the SSL library.
1: And if you did it enough, you might find the right secret eventually, or pieces that you put together. Yep.
0: So in this case of this vulnerability, because it was within this OpenID application or uh, library within there, the adjacent memory often included things like the session token of authenticated users. So the attacker could eventually, uh, essentially leak out session information and then take over that session for the victims. Hence the name Citrix Bleed for this vulnerability, because of its similarities with Heartbleed. They even gave it. Corey highlighted it here in the video, pretty you know great marketing image thing. I feel like they basically copied
1: heart, heart Heart bleed, but uh, no, Heartbleed was a heart with that bleeding. Now it's just Citrix with bleeding.
0: Yep. So really, this boiled down to like whoever wrote this, and not to like you know throw wrenches or throw stones. But not fully understanding the snprintf function, which is still it's still the recommended secure version of sprintf, and it avoids buffer overflows, but does not a, avoid a buffer overread if you take the return value of it at face value and don't do any validation or any additional controls around that. Um,
1: man, and by the way, it is, it's, it's basically like uh, two lines of code to just check that you're getting back under, you know, the same size of what you expected in order to fix this. Yep. Like
0: if you're expecting the buffer to only be 138 bytes or kilobytes, then check and just make sure that you're not returning something larger than 138 kilobytes and you avoid a out of bounds read that could potentially disclose sensitive information and become a nine point four out of 10 severity vulnerability. Oopsie, um, yeah, oopsie. So either way, if you are a Citrix Netscaler user, make sure you have patched your systems, especially if they are, for some unexplainable reason, exposed to the internet directly. Uh, Preferably sticking behind a VPN or some other form of secure remote access. And uh, at least this one is at least patched. And pretty cool research from AssetNote, looking into the exact vulnerability. And what ended up being a pretty simple issue with relatively catastrophic results when exploited time to go uh review all of my c code again and make sure i'm not doing buffer overreads i suppose but hey eh, cool research
1: yeah very cool research good job asset note
0: good job asset note
1: hey everyone thanks again for listening
0: as always if you enjoyed today's episode and corey sassy pants uh, you can reach out to us on twitter or crap no x that's what it's called uh, if you paid the dollar to register remember that's a requirement now uh, i'm at xorro underscore Corey is at secadept and the both of us are or, at or was
1: i'm not giving was. elon musk my
0: dollar exactly hashtag the 443 podcast uh thanks again for listening and you will hear from us next week